0: Yeah, let's give a shout for the worship team. Come on! Aren't you glad they can sing? Because <laughs> I can't. Anyways, good to be with you guys. Guys, winter is over! Come on! That was like seven months. We had a seven-month long winter. My forums have not seen sun in seven months. Anyways, I won't start the sermon like that. Okay, uh, excited to be here with you guys. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Tony. Uh, so pumped to be here with you guys. Now, we are finishing up our lineage series where we've been looking at a couple of different people throughout the history of the Old Testament that are pointing to the unexpected king tonight. And so really, really excited to be here. If you're new here to Salt Company, and this is your first time, which there's always new people every single Thursday, thanks for being here. Thanks for taking the step of faith that it takes to come into a space like this. We recognize it can be scary at times, and so we're just really thankful that you guys are here. And, and I also wanted to thank kind of the rest of the Salt Company fam. Um, yeah, as we close, close out this year, it's, It's been unbelievable. And I just wanted to personally thank you. You guys spur me on in my faith and my walk with Jesus. And I've been praying and dreaming about a place like this for a long time, a place where we could be a multi-ethnic movement of people that spread beyond campuses into the city. And I really believe that God is going to use this group of people to transform the city of St. Paul. And so I just wanted to say thanks for, for joining us this year and yeah, speaking about things that are happening in our family, there's actually a friend of ours who um, this last week just, just actually got an infection in his brain, and um, yeah, they're not sure what his future will look like in terms of mental faculties or the use of his left side, and so I actually just want to pray for him as we enter into the message, but, but also pray for you guys. If there are people in your life that are really hurting right now, or you're one of those people, um, yeah, Jesus continues to heal. And we actually believe that. And so let me pray for us as we enter into the the message here tonight. (laughs) Yeah, Father, there's um, there's a sadness about someone who's young and just getting started in life, having to undergo surgery on his brain and Unsure of what his future looks like, Lord, and unsure if there will be healing, unsure if there'll be a an ability to use his left side again and um, yeah father, that's really scary that's scary for him, that's scary for his friends, that's scary for his family and um, yeah Lord, we do pray that you would supernaturally heal him that there would be something beautiful that happens in that hospital room where doctors are unsure of what happened but but his faculties came back. His left side was regenerated. We do pray, Jesus, that the same God who was with the man at the pool of Bethesda in John 5 is with him now, and we trust that. And uh, Father, I do pray for anyone else here who's holding on to some of the weight of painful circumstances in their life. Uncles that are relapsing, boyfriends that have tumors. Um, Yeah, Father, this is this is not about salt company this isn't really about any of us but it is about you and so we do pray jesus that you would do something supernatural in their lives but more than anything lord more than the healing more than the grace that comes upon them in that way would they actually believe that father you are with them you are in them and you're going to use them to continue the work of your gospel father would they believe that their lives have a purpose that's beyond this world so that when this body fails they know that one day they would have a regenerative body. So, Father, we do pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, there's no way to transition, so I'm just going to do it. If you guys had the opportunity to design your perfect life, what would it be like? Okay, if you had the opportunity to design your perfect life, what would it be like? I'm not going to lie, guys. First thing that came to mind was a six-pack, Okay. And here's why, it's because I've never had one, and I don't know how other people get them, but they seem really nice. Like how do people live lean like that? I love food too much. The second thing that I thought of was actually traveling. Like what is up with like young 20-somethings being on islands in Greece these days? Like where do they, how do they get the money? How do they get the islands? I don't know, amazing. But the thing that I, I was thinking about as I was kind of prepping this sermon, it was like deep down, you know, like really deep down on the barrels of my soul, If I could design my perfect life, I would buy Twitter. You know what I'm saying? $44 billion, what a price tag, you know? I don't even own anything, trying to do the math, but it's too many zeros, so I'm not even gonna try. But that's crazy, right? Wow, what a crazy time. But here's my guess, is that if you were to design your own life, if you wanted to kind of put together the pieces of your life, my guess is that all of us here would design it somewhat like this. You would be born into a safe and secure family. You'd have financial stability the most of your life. You'd actually go to college, get a nice job that had enough mobility and money for you to travel all the time and yet still pay all your bills. You'd have deep relationships with everyone. And then one day at 94 years old, you would die surrounded by your family and your friends in a peaceful way. My guess is if we could design our lives, we would design our lives like that. But tonight, we're actually going to be looking at a story of a man, the greatest man to ever live in Luke chapter 2 who didn't design his life like that, who actually didn't live a life of abundance but actually lived a life of poverty, who didn't live a life of power but actually was an oppressed minority at that time. We're going to be looking at the story of a man who changed everything, who came not as someone who was living a comfortable life but a suffering life. Open up your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. If you don't know what Luke is, it is one of the four gospel accounts. Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be at, and we are going to be studying the unexpected king the coming of a man named Jesus who entered into the world and changed everything. Look with me to Luke chapter 2 as we look at the unexpected king. We will begin in Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 as we learn of the unexpected birth. The unexpected birth. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Cornelius was governor of Syria. Pro tip, if you ever have to read the Bible publicly, just say it really fast, and no one will know. It'll be great. Unless you tell them, and then they will know. Anyways, verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was one of the house and the lineage of David. Shout out to the series title. Very nice. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, Who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in a swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Jalil said if I made a water joke today, he's gonna boo me. So I won't, Jalil. It's true. All right, so let's begin, okay? A couple different things. I want to, guys, it couldn't be a salt company if I didn't make one, you know? So anyways, we'll get into it. A couple different things I want to point out here. First is the history of Jesus. Okay, so tonight it's going to be a bit of a different sermon. You guys know, normally I don't go into the nuances of all this stuff, but I'm actually going to nerd out tonight a little bit about history, okay? Partly because I loved APUSH in high school. It was like my favorite subject, AP US history. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Some of you guys know, great subject. I passed the test in case you were wondering. Anyways. With a three, though, and it wasn't, it wasn't that good of a test. Okay. But partly because I want you to, to show you guys the history of this moment, but mainly because I have a huge pet peeve, okay? I'm going to level with you guys. My number one pet peeve in my life is that Christianity is somehow seen as dumb. I don't like that. I don't like that one bit, okay? A couple different reasons why. One is because I'm Asian. Okay. Now, some of you guys are wondering... Why is he saying that? I'm saying that because we're book smart and nothing else. It's just true. This feels like it's, like, self-deprecating, but it's not. It's actually true. And I don't want to be associated with the losing team on the intellectual battle of ideology. Okay? So that's one reason why. The second, the second that, like, okay. You only feel comfortable to laugh if you're Asian, and if you are, you can laugh. You can also laugh if you're not Asian. I'll give, give you that response. Anyways. So anyways, keep going. So probably because I'm Asian. But two, two... So he's like, that doesn't make sense. What well, makes sense to me, all right? <laughs> Two, second reason why I think it's important that we realize that Christianity is not for dumb people is Christianity has significant historical and intellectual backing. I know that could sound a little bit weird because a lot of us grow up in the Christian faith, and we kind of assume that the Bible is full of fairy tales, and the people in the Bible aren't even really real, and they're not even characters. They're like characters in a story, but they weren't actually real. But my hope is tonight that I'll be able to give you a little bit of a handle, handle, That Christianity is not just an intellectually backed faith, but in my humble opinion, which I understand is biased, it is the most intellectually credible faith. And there's more historicity around the person of Jesus than any other person to live throughout human history. So my hope is to give you a little bit of a sense of what it looks like to think rightly about the faith that we believe in. And there's some of you who don't. And I actually want to say thanks for being a part of this gathering tonight. And if you have any questions on anything after this, I would love to engage you with some of the questions that you have. I've asked all of them. But the reason why I say that Christianity is one of the most intellectually backed religions that I can think of is because I've spent the last couple years of my life reading the Quran, studying Islam, understanding Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, and other type of world religions and tribal religions. And here's what I want to show you is Christianity is singularly set apart as a faith. Now, here's what I mean by that. Intellectually speaking, every other religion falls under the umbrella of do good, get good. Okay? Do good, get good. Here's what I mean by that. If you do good in this life, then you'll get an eternal future. But the question that we ask as philosophers is, okay, what what defines good? If good is compared to me, then everyone's getting in. Okay, everyone's getting in, and it's a good time. But if good is compared to a perfect and holy God, if good is compared to a perfect standard, then by definition, if no one is perfect, no one is getting in. So philosophically speaking, Christianity is fundamentally different than any other major worldview. And the reason for that is is Christianity isn't do good, get good. It's that God was good in your place so that you, even as a broken person, can get in. That's the difference between Christianity and every other world religion. So not only does it make intellectual sense and philosophical sense, I also think that Christianity, which I understand is my opinion and I, I get that this is my job, okay? I also think that Christianity fundamentally makes the most sense on the human condition. That no other book ever written, no person ever lived like Jesus could analyze the human soul. And here's the reality. All of us know that we're not that good at life. And if you think you're good at life, then wait like two years and you realize you're not that good at life. All of us know that we have a broken soul. That the truth is, no matter what you've come in here with tonight, that not all of you is there. You're not 100% whole. That the sin of this world and the sin of your life has broken you. And so philosophically speaking, Jesus is the only one who can heal you, but human condition speaking, he's the only one who can wrap himself around your soul. He's the only one that can actually heal the crevices of your life. And so for some of you in this room, if you're here and you're kind of questioning and you're like, do I go to Christianity? Do I go to other different worldviews and religions? Do I kind of turn into this kind of metamorphic, like kind of Christian, kind of atheist type of person? Here's my invitation for you, is would you lean in tonight? All of you guys, hopefully, but... Would you in particular lean in tonight? And would you see that the unexpected Jesus lived an unexpected life for an unexpected death, for an unexpected resurrection, so that for a lot of us in this room, tonight he could meet us in an unexpected way? That's my hope for us tonight as we get into the text. should probably go back to the text. Okay. Oh, oh, I missed this part. Darn it. Okay, well, I'm going to say it. We can put it up on the screens, Thomas. Okay. So the second reason why we believe that Jesus is historical and an actual real person is because outside extra biblical resources compile a list of Jesus's life and death. Okay, so these are just a couple. There's quite a bit more. But what I wanted to show you is these are four secular and non-Christian historians that have amalgamated some content on Jesus's life. So if you want to actually look outside of the Bible to hear about Jesus, you can do that. I would recommend you stay in the Bible for your own devotion. But if you want to study the history of Jesus, Jesus Christ was a real person. And here's how we know that. We can, we can take that down. If you want those names later, come come find me and I'll share with you my manuscript. Okay. Here's why we know that actually is because in verse one, we see that Caesar took a census. So open up your Bibles if you still have it. We're gonna to go to verse one. He took a census. And the reason why this matters is because this shows us actually that that Jesus was a recorded person in the Roman Empire. Now, I know that seems like a little bit of a nuance, but the reason why I'm telling you this is because, actually, you can look back into the Roman census books or whatever, and Jesus' name is there. So, irregardless of whether or not you believe that Jesus is a son of God, which I understand is a big lofty concept that we can talk more about later, he was a real person. And, And I wanted to share with you guys this because Luke is actually, he's a disciple of Jesus, but he's also a physician, a scholar, and a theologian, which is really cool. I'm like, wow, what a job title. But he wrote this book, this gospel account, and he actually writes it with intensive detail for you to understand that there's a history behind this. See, a lot of us grow up thinking the Bible is a culmination of fairy tale stories, right? It's kind of like, okay, fire from heaven, boom! You're like, awesome. Jesus heals people. You're like, okay, is he even a real person or is he kind of like an angel? The truth is a lot of us grow up without a factual understanding of the Bible, But Luke is trying to write this narrative, not just as a narrative, a story. Yes, a story of the Son of God redeeming all of humanity, but secondarily, a historical narrative. And here's what a historical narrative is, a story of real people in real places. And if you look at verse 2, actually, if you have your Bible with you, you'll note that he cites two real people. One is Caesar Augustus, who was a real person, and the second one is that hard one. I can't pronounce, like, Quinerius, you know, whatever that one is, okay? That's the second one. Both of these are real people at real places in time who govern real areas of Rome. So the reason why Luke is doing that is he's trying to give us historical anchors to realize the story of Jesus is not a figment of your imagination nor a fairy tale made up 2,000 years ago, but has historical evidence of people recording the life, death of Jesus in and outside of the Bible. Okay, we'll move on. That's my main nerd part. I don't think I've got anything more on the nerdy part, but we can talk more about that later. Second thing I wanted to talk about from this passage is actually how he was born, not just with unexpected history, but in an unexpected circumstance. Okay, here's my question for you. If you were God, which I know, none of you here are, but if you are, you should let us know. Okay, it, that would be really life-changing for a lot of people because that completely debunk the Christian faith. Anyways, if you were God, okay? I don't know. These are, that's my type of humor, okay? It makes sense to me when I say it, but it doesn't make as much sense when it comes out. If you were God, hypothetically speaking, how would you come into the world? Actual question, think about it. How would you come into the world to tell the whole world that you were God? I'd probably come as like Elon, you know, Jeffy Jeff, you know what I'm saying? Like Queen Bey, like I don't know who you'd come as, but you'd probably come as one of those people, Right? You'd come with this big new invention. You'd probably you know, come in on like a flying car, and you'd tell everyone that you're awesome. right? Like, that's how you would come in as God. And yet, Jesus doesn't come in like that. And he actually comes in, in an incredibly unexpected way. Here's how Jesus comes into the world. Tell me if you would come in like this. He comes as a societal bastard, born into an impoverished family, under the rule and oppression of Rome, as a blue-collar car- carpenter and stonemason. Plot twist. That's how he comes into the world. See, that was unexpected to everyone. Like that should feel unexpected to us, but we kind of know the story a little bit, but that was incredibly unexpected to the Jewish people. And here's why. The Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah to militarily take over Rome. And then they got like a nomad carpenter. You know what I'm saying? Spent three years, like, walking around fields and talking about the kingdom of God that was to come later. Like, it, it, it didn't make sense. It was unexpected. And it should be unexpected to us because here's what God is trying to show us in the way that he comes into the earth, his character and his humility. God himself, who took on flesh and blood, came in and lived not in a palace, was born not in a palace, but a manger. Not born of affluence, but born into poverty, not born of power. But born into an oppressed minority who would do that except god himself look with me to verse 7 and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in his swaddling cloth and laid them in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. we've got a quote that's about to go up right now but this is a quote that i found helpful to understand some of the symbolism between jesus not having place in the inn. here's what barclay says that there was no room in the inn was symbolic of what was to happen to Jesus. The only place where there was room for him was on a cross. I want you guys to see that most people understood that Jesus suffered in his death. But very few people talk about how he suffered in his life. And I want to paint the nativity scene for you correctly. So I think a lot of us kind of grow up around Christianity. You, you maybe you were like a Christer and you like went to Christmas and it's like, baby Jesus is so cute. You're like, wow, amazing but actually it was a really dark scene because the setting that God himself chose to come into was a scandalous scene. See, if we look in verse 5, here's what we learn, is that Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem to register their family unmarried while Mary was pregnant. Now, that would be kind of, compl- like, kind of confusing, right? Like, like, Let's say that's your life. You're 16 years old, you're not married, and yet you have a kid. That would be a big deal, right? 2,000 years ago, this was a catastrophic deal because no one in Nazareth believed in the Immaculate Conception. Like, that term wasn't even made yet. It didn't ever happen before. The idea that God would impregnate impregnate someone through his spirit was a random concept that no one believed. So here's what everyone believed about Mary's life, that she was a 16-year-old adulterer. And here's what happened to adulterers back in that day. They would be stoned. And by God's providential mercy and kindness, he spoke through Joseph to actually be faithful to Mary. So she wasn't stoned, but she was shamed. Likely, Mary spent her whole life being called a whore, an adulterer, and an unfaithful woman. I want to take the societal setting a little bit deeper even. Think about Jesus's place then. We talk about the manger and the nativity scene, but we don't talk about the social setting, right? Think about Jesus's place. He was born to a 16-year-old woman who was an adulterer by societal standards. By definition, he would have been a bastard. Now, there was no political correctness in first century Jerusalem and Nazareth. It's very likely that Jesus would have spent his entire life being bullied profusely, being rejected and outcasted, being shamed at every corner. No one wanted to be around him. No one believed that he was the son of God. No one believed that his mother was not an adulterer and a whore, but a woman chosen by God through immaculate conception. And the reason why I want to give you that setting is because I want to actually show you the humanity of Jesus. That there is a human, humanity and a divinity thing that's going on in the person of Jesus, and it's so cool. It's called like the God-man theology. It's, it's awesome, okay? But I think we talk about the godness of Jesus a lot, but I want to show you the humanity of Jesus, that he was born as a bastard into a home that was broken. That he was lived up and grew up in a town where people looked at him and said, that guy's leftover goods. What an unexpected way for the king of the universe to enter into humanity. As I was thinking about this, I was actually thinking about kind of my early experiences as I was frustrated with the idea of God. Both my parents grew up in starvation in a post-war South Korea where it was bloody and and just really, really bad. And and we moved here, actually, illegally to the United States. This is not a political statement. This is just my life, Okay? We moved here illegally to the United States. and, And I remember growing up in a neighborhood where I saw a lot of things really quickly. I went to an elementary school that had prison bars on its windows. Most of the guys I grew up with became a statistic in the prison system. They never went to college. Most of the other kids that I knew had single moms or were illegal immigrants from Mexico. I remember seeing a lot of things really, really quickly. And I remember thinking to myself, God can't be real. Because the concept of an ethereal, hypothetical God that was above and beyond the human experience and the human condition, even if he was real, I wasn't interested. And so I threw in the towel on religion and faith. I told my parents that the Christian God is phony that he's a political man-made ideology, and that I was out. And then the most unexpected thing actually happened to me is when I was 17 years old, I met Jesus. And as I began to look at the Bible, there was something really beautiful that happened to me as I read the gospel account in the book of John. I began to see that Jesus was not this hypothetical, ethereal God, but his humanity gave me hope because he showed me that he didn't just care about suffering. He didn't just have empathy about suffering. He didn't just have teachings about suffering. He experienced suffering. Do you guys realize how crazy that is? Christianity is a singular world religion where God himself claims to have suffered, where God himself was born into this kind of circumstance, where God himself experienced all of the pain and all of the hurt and all of the shame and all of the rejection that all of humanity would face. Christianity is a singular world religion where God himself suffered. And isn't it unexpected that the God who created the world, the heavens, and the earth, who created everything in between can relate with your suffering? So here's what I want to show you from this text. If you you grew up in a home where the people in your family were misunderstood, where you didn't like the home that you grew up in, Jesus understands. If you've grown up as an oppressed minority, and you're frustrated by the power structures that exist in our world, Jesus actually understands. If you grew up being rejected by people, imagine with me this. Bastard, shamed, rejected as the God-man to the point of death on a cross, Jesus understands. And if you've grown up feeling alone, The God of the universe left the Trinity, the Trinitarian community of peace, to come onto the earth, to be separated from them in a moment on the cross where he felt more alone than any person in all of human history could even imagine. Jesus understands. I need you to know this, that the humanity of Jesus gives us hope because it shows us that he doesn't just care ethereally about your suffering. He's not just hypothetically with you. He understands. He's lived it. Jesus is just so different. He's so different. Look with me to Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 34, as we look at the unexpected death of Jesus. We just learned about the unexpected life and the birth of Jesus, that he would be birthed in a radically different way than any of us would even design or imagine. But now we're going to be looking at the unexpected death of Jesus. And this is about to get real. I'm about to give a crucifixion account, and it is going to be gruesome and bloody and hard to hear. But my hope is, actually, that as you learn of the brutality of the crucifixion, that the beauty of Jesus would ring through your ears and into your heart, that he would change you through his suffering. Look with me to verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, you guys remember that for last week, David Goliath, boom, David Goliath's skull, right there. Okay, that's the place. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. Maybe the most important sentence is written ever in human history right there, by the way. Three quick things I want to hit on here for us to understand. One is why did people want to kill him? Second is, how did they kill him? And third is, what did he say when they were killing him? Let's begin with, why did they kill him? They killed him because he claimed he was God. Josh McDonald says this, Why don't the names of Buddha, Muhammad, and Confucius offend people? The reason is, these others didn't claim to be God, but Jesus did. Here's what I wanted you to see in the life of Jesus. He didn't just give comfort. He made claims. He didn't just heal the broken and the sick. He actually called people to repentance of their sin. And all throughout his three-year ministry, he had unexpected claims like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can get to the Father except through me. That is a radically offensive claim in 2022. This is an exclusive truth claim that has come out of the mouth of Jesus. And later on, he would make more claims that he is the son of God, that, that, that means he is God. He came to pronounce that he was a savior God-man that humanity desperately needed. People hated him, not because he was a comforter, but because he made unexpected claims. He was killed because he was the God-man who comforted and convicted. Second question I want us to ask is how? How did they kill him? Here's my ask for us as we enter into this next part of the sermon. This is going to sound incredibly gruesome to you. It is going to make you squirm in your seat. Don't disengage. So many of us have heard of the cross of Christ that we almost throw that around as a flippant term. Like, oh, yeah, Jesus went to the cross. I understand that he died for my sins. I get that. But went to the cross is not enough to describe the crucifixion of Jesus. The crucifixion of Jesus was a horrific event. See, the crucifixion was created by Romans to actually put humanity through the most amount of pain humanly possible. And not just that, not to just give them the most amount of pain, but actually to strip them of the most amount of their human dignity. And so here's how Jesus' experience would begin. On that day, as he was captured and brought to the crucifixion site, his cloak would be taken off of him. His hands would wrap around a wooden beam. And they would tie his hands to that beam. His back would be exposed. And then there would be a man holding this whip called the nine tails whip. And here's what that whip was. On the edge of each one of those nine tails were shards of metal, glass, and broken rocks. And whip by whip, he would swing that whip. And it would latch on to the flesh on the back of its victim. It would twist in, catch hold. And then he would rip it out. And out would come chunks of Jesus' back. And blood would spurt every time he whipped him. And he would do that over and over and over again until you could barely see the skin on the back of Jesus. Like a ragged doll. And then next, they would take him off of that post and they would put a new post on his back. Now, this post was a massive post. It was actually the freestanding post of the cross. It would have weighed a ton of weight. And in that dilapidated state, Jesus would be expected to bring that post with him. And he would walk up the streets of Jerusalem and walk up the hill of Calvary with that post. And at moments, he would faint. And Simon, the other guy, would help him. And he would get up to that end of the post, exhausted with that rugged cross bearing into his back, splinters tearing open his skin. And that would only be the beginning. Because it would actually be from there that he would be laid on that beam, and then another side beam would be added. His arms would be stretched wide. His, hands would be, his feet would be crossed. And first, they would nail a nail through his ankles. I think through his feet, actually. And then they would nail two nails, one in between each wrist. And what that would do is that it would actually pierce what's called the median nerve. And the sensation that that person would actually have is that their arms were lit on fire. So on the cross, this is a condition of our king. His hands would have to cup like this because he was in so much pain. His body would rub against the back of a rough post. And with every breath, he would scream, as he would lift up his body just to take a simple breath, as his back would scrape against the post. And every breath was one step closer to death. The God of the universe would come to die in a radically unexpected way, not in the comfort of your home, not surrounded by the people you love but abandoned by the people he loved, abandoned by his disciples, rejected by Peter three times, and on a cross alone, bleeding out. But maybe the most miraculous part of this narrative story, this death narrative story of Jesus, the most unexpected part of this story was not how he died, but actually what he said as he was dying. This is, I think, the single most beautiful sentence ever written in human history. Look with me to verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As I call the worship band back up, I want you to imagine this moment with me. You are experiencing the most amount of pain any human can really feasibly experience without passing out and dying. At this point, you have been whipped time and time again. You have been hung on a cross like a piece of meat. You have been tortured. You have been accused. You have been spit on. You have been slapped across the face. You have been mocked by putting a crown of thorns on your head. Every pit of pain in your body is exploding. Every bit of human dignity from you has been stripped away. And here's what he says. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Imagine this moment with me. What came out of the cross in this moment was compassion. What an unexpected response to a death like this. Who does that? Jesus in this moment was more concerned about the souls of those who were torturing him than his own body. Who does that? Who prays to the Father for the people who are torturing you? Who does that? Jesus. Only Jesus. Isaiah fifty-three twelve says this that he made intercession for the transgressors. See, Isaiah 53 was written long ago before Jesus was ever coming onto the earth. And here's what Isaiah 53 promised. A servant savior, he wouldn't use power to destroy people, but would use his power to save people. That's what Isaiah 53 promised. And on the cross, here's what Jesus did. As he was being tortured, as he was being transgressed, he made intercession for those guards. He prayed on the behalf of those guards that God would open their eyes to the beautiful salvation that was taking place in front of them, even though all they could see was a ragged piece of meat hanging on a cross. This is who Jesus is. Can you see his compassion written in the middle of the lines of the cross? That to the point of the cross, he still loved those who were killing him. But I want to end like this tonight, actually, that one of the most beautiful things about this passage is not just the unexpected death and the unexpected life and the unexpected birth, but was actually in the unexpected resurrection, that the story didn't end here, but instead Jesus Christ would unexpectedly rise. And here's what he was was trying to show people as he rose, that his kingdom would be different than that of Caesar's and that of Rome that his kingdom would not be political or based on power structures of this world, but his kingdom would be based on the love of God for broken sinners like you and me. And here's what MLK said about the kingdom of God. The great military leaders of the past have gone, their empires have crumbled and burned to ashes, but the empire of Jesus, built solidly and majestically on the foundation of love, is still growing. Come on, that's so good. Here's what Jesus came to do. He came to build an empire on the ashes of his broken body. He came to build a kingdom on the power of his resurrected body and on the foundation of the church. And like MLK said, many leaders have come and gone. But because Jesus Christ, the one true king, came and rose again, he will never be gone. He'll be with you every single day for the rest of your life. And you can see on the cross that he loves you so deeply that in a similar way, even though you were once a transgressor, he once interceded for you. Even though once you were the one who were nailing him onto that tree, he prayed for you. Jesus Christ is the most compassionate king, the most unexpected king that anyone could ever imagine. This is the beautiful love that Jesus has for you. And so some of you here tonight, and you've heard of Jesus as a condemning king. You've heard of Jesus as a figurative king. You've heard of Jesus as a fictional king. Here's what I wanna show you. He is the unexpected king that gave compassion on the cross. that that was tortured and died but rose again so that you could live. That is the unexpected king of Jesus. I wanna end this sermon a little bit differently tonight and say that as I was thinking about this text, the most unexpected thing about Jesus to me in in my short amount of time knowing him since I was 17 years old, is his kindness to someone as broken as me. He saved me when I was 17 and that would have been enough He has nothing left to prove. But since then, he has healed me of an addiction to porn. He has molded me and mended me from the abuse of my father. He has come through when I couldn't walk on my own. And when I didn't believe, Jesus believed for me. When I was so depressed that I didn't even know if I was a Christian, Jesus came through for me. And there's some of you in this room where that's my prayer for you is that Jesus become unexpected to you, that you wouldn't even understand how much he loves you, but tonight he would make it known to you that he does, and that every moment of your life was converging for a moment like this for you two to once encounter Jesus in an unexpected way. So I'll come here. Here's my question for you, is do you know Jesus like that? The compassionate king, the unexpected king, that lavishes love on you tonight. Do you know him like that? Jesus, I know that there are people in this room who have perceived you to be a different type of king, a condemning king, a figurative king, a fictional king. But Jesus, I pray tonight that you would be the unexpected king, the king that they didn't expect, the king that they didn't deserve, but the king that interceded for them even when they were a transgressor. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I believe, Jesus, that tonight all of us need a renewed sense of how beautiful you are, that we would bow to the beauty of the king who had compassion on the cross but also that Jesus you too would intercede for someone tonight that a soul would be changed that our hearts would be softened and that we would worship you because Jesus you are worthy of our worship you are this is who you are you bled out on the cross and you prayed for your torturers this is who you are you are worthy of our worship